Now, Father, we, as we just sung about the light, you declare that you as God have tried to reveal in that great mystery of Trinity, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have redeemed us, and so we sing of your salvation. And as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes again this morning, you have given to us that shows us that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy our souls. Our souls are made for you and will find ultimately their only joy in you. And so as we learn through the life of Solomon, as we learn through the life of Solomon, as he penned the book of Ecclesiastes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we would be taught to think of the profundity of wonder and the goodness of you, our God, to redeem us and give us a world that is to be enjoyed, but it is to be enjoyed rightly. And it is to point us ultimately back up to you, our great giver and creator of all things. So to that end, we pray that you exalt your name and exalt Christ in our hearts. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Well, open up your Bibles at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we come to chapter 2, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Um, it was my original intention to cover uh, actually verses 1, chapter 12, all the way to the end of chapter 2, but we ended up last time taking a little excursion to look at the life of Solomon, the man behind the, these words, the man behind the message of Ecclesiastes. And we finished that by looking at verses 12 through 18. And now we get down to verses uh, 1 through 26. I actually intended to get all the way through chapter 2, but realized this morning at about 8.35 that was not going to happen. I started studying before 8.35. It was 8.35 when I came to the realization. I started at 7. I'm kidding. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we are going to get all the way up to verse 23 uh, this morning in the morning. I want to begin by giving you a quote from some of y'all have heard of a, a writer, it's a philosopher, if you will. Uh, I'm probably going to mess up his name a little bit, but Blase Pascal. And he has a book, and he has a book that's essentially a collection of his thoughts. And he made a statement, he made several statements that you'd be familiar with, but one uh, statement, more than a statement, it's a short paragraph. Uh, he made about happiness, which has been often repeated. I want to read it to you this morning. It contains the truth that relates to what Solomon's going to believe for us this morning. He says this in, in part of that paragraph. He says, All men are in search of happiness. And there is no exception to this. Whatever different methods are employed, they all aim for this goal. So while some go to war and others do not, the same desire is in both, but from different viewpoints. They, the will never takes the slightest step except with that aim. This is the motive for men's every action, even those who are going to hang themselves. In other words, the soul always acts, and the soul that directs and governs and motivates the will is always ending, or is always has one end as its objective, and that is to be happy, to be satisfied. We never do anything without the end and thinking what we are going to do is somehow going to satisfy whatever desire it is that we want met. Even in the case that he gives the man who hangs himself, the desire to be happy by being free from whatever pains led him to that decision. So the soul always works by what 
it thinks will be to its best advantage. Even when that leads to foolish and self-destructive decisions, what's driving even those things that lead to self-destruction, we can think easily of drugs and alcohol and other things, is yet being driven by the desire to be happy and never finding it. It keeps seeking and seeking those empty wells that ultimately lead to its downfall. But it is the desire for happiness that is driving it. It is the desire for satisfaction and for pleasure. You could ask yourself, looking at your own life, what motivates what you do? What motivates every decision that you can? Well, Solomon stands before us as an example, and as the ultimate teacher, which he is called in the book of Ecclesiastes, the one who sought for happiness by taking every advantage and every opportunity that this world affords, only to find that his answer left him without an answer, essentially, that his pursuit left him without an answer to what his soul longed for. And so if we were to give a, a, a short way to capture what Solomon is going to teach us here, what God is through the life of Solomon, it's this, that life is ultimately meaningless apart from the true, and by true, meaning relational knowledge, genuine relational knowledge of God. Creation holds no meaning apart from the Creator. Well, that, let's begin. Let's look at uh, reading four portions of this. I won't for time's sake read the whole chapter, uh, but I'll read verses 1 through 2, verses 10 through uh, 17, and then verses 4 through 6. So, we'll, we'll read it all the way through. Begin with me in verse 1. He says, I said to myself, or in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it to you was futility. I said, Laughter is madness, and the pleasure, what does it accomplish? Verse 10. All of my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will a man do who will come after the king to touch what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, and the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls him both. And then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will befall me. I didn't know I been extremely wise. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of a wise man as with the fool, and as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool die alike. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is utility and striving after them. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom, knowledge, and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after winning. 
There is a testimony of Solomon, a man who had it all, a man who withheld no energy to actively pursue everything that he could for the satisfaction of his own soul. And this is what he learned. This is what he learned. We're going to look at this under two general headings. We're going to take the first uh, this morning, beginning in verse 1. But before we get to it, let's just notice as, uh, as an introduction, verses 1 through 2, and, and what is the nature of Solomon's quest? The nature of Solomon's quest. I'll read it again. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was utility. I said, Laughter is madness with pleasure. What does it accomplish? This is coming after his statements in verse 18, where, or really 12 through 18, where he said he applied his, his life, his energies to understand wisdom in the world, and it left him only hating wisdom and despairing of life. He realized that in seeking answers there, it left him only with pain. So having exhausted those mental powers to explore meaning in the world by human wisdom and finding it yielded no answers, he now turns to use those same powers of his intellect to find answers for his soul by exploring pleasure. By exploring pleasure. It's on the face of it. In other words, by turning to what we would say is a hedonistic lifestyle. What is a hedonistic lifestyle? It's defined, I think, very simply by this. One, he was engaged in the pursuit of pleasure. Typically, hedonism, though he attempts it, it covers everything related to what one might do for pleasure, for their own pleasure. It often has the idea of sensuality in it as well. And that certainly is a part of Solomon's own quest. He states here then what is his motivation. He states it blankly, he states it plainly. It's not stated so plainly by many, and yet it is the unspoken motivation for most of what we do, most of what our society does. Does. It seeks to find happiness and satisfaction in satisfying our flesh and our desires. Our culture, of course, as many cultures throughout the history of the world, we're not unique in this. Obviously, Solomon is writing this long before, uh, near the 10th century AD, long before we would come about, and yet it was just as true for them as for us. But we live in our culture, and so we certainly can observe this in our times particularly, and that is that we are. In some ways, though, we can't say this is unique. We are a people who are consumed by consumption and have the ability to consume in ways that other people throughout the history of the world have not. To consume so regularly. There's an insatiable hunger to find or do or to watch the next thing that will bring me pleasure and therefore joy and happiness in life. Whether spoken or unspoken or simply thought or felt in the shadows of sort of secret places of our hearts. We seek to find that which will ultimately bring us a sense of selfless. Or whether it's the reason to inclusion or merely the continuous, unthinking yielding of our will to every temptation that comes our way, we are a culture that is enslaved to pleasure. We are a people consumed with pleasure, entertainment, personal fulfillment, and short with self. And God warned, unless we think you know, Solomon is in some category by himself, that this is exactly the kind of thing that would come to dominate our culture more and more. And not only the culture outside of the church, but the culture inside the church. 
You're familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the first few verses there. And know that when he's speaking here, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to those who are identifying in some way with the name of Christ. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3. He says, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He'll say later, the runway that's manifest is by accumulating for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Not wanting conformity to Christ, but wanting merely pleasure that which will condone them in their activities, essentially. And so we are a lot like Solomon. He embodies our culture, he embodies that fallen heart of men, that sinful aspect of our flesh that always wants expression. But what does Solomon mean here by pleasure? He says, I said to myself, come on. Happiness for different ways that it's, it's translated. In each of these, the idea is simply this, that the desire to satisfy self, to provide some sense of meaning and joy in life. But what it means, what it does not mean here is this. He's not talking about pleasure in pursuing uh, things forbidden. This is an important point. It's not talking about forbidden things. In fact, each of the pleasures that he mentions here, the pleasure of work, the pleasure of food and drink, even the pleasure of sexual expression and delight, are all things that are commended in the book of Ecclesiastes and throughout Scripture, in the right context, in the right way. We'll look at that uh, more next week. These are all things that are actually commended by God. But here they take a path which does not find God's condemnation, condemnation, but rather it's a path that is without God. And so the issue is, what is important to understand, is not the things themselves, it's not to say wine is wrong, it's not to say accomplishments are wrong, it's not to say enjoying the things of creation are wrong, it's not to say enjoying sexual pleasure is wrong, it's not to say any of those things are wrong, it is everything to do with what we want from those things and why we seek them, what we do with them. For, and even in Solomon's case, it was not... It was not merely hedonism for hedonism's sake, but it was a search to find meaning in these things. It was a reliance on his own ability to experience them and come up with some kind of answer that was more than what he had received already in God's covenant word. So the problem isn't with laughter, the problem isn't with pleasure, but it is with the wrong use of them. And the problem is that Solomon found they'll fade away, and when they fade away the enjoyment, all of those things are still left with the same problems and the same questions. They don't solve anything. They don't solve anything. But that didn't, that did not keep him from trying. So he said he determined to find whatever he could at the end of verse 3 that there is for the sons of men to do under heaven in the few years of their lives. And there's a deeper error that lies into in Solomon's life. We have this generally when we looked at his life. And so I can ask the question, where did he go astray? What went wrong? With all that he had, with all the opportunity he had, with the, with the very personal revelation of God to him on two occasions where he spoke to him directly, where did Solomon go wrong after writing the book of Proverbs? Where did he miss his own teaching about wisdom? It was essentially this that Solomon took every advantage that he had and turned it into a means of self-gratification. It's really as profound and as simple as that. He, he removed God 
from the picture. He demonstrated that tendency of man's spiritual darkness to think that truth really lies within ourselves. That's not merely misdirecting. That is, beloved, satanic. We'll look at that even a little bit closely. It's satanic. It is that lie that began in the garden, which is to say that I can seize and define and know reality on my own apart from God. That's the lie. That's the lie that we believe. And that, sadly, is the lie that Solomon himself believed in so many. And it is pushed in our popular culture. I recently watched through the original Star Wars trilogy with one of my daughters, and we always, you know, laugh. Luke, search your feelings. Search your feelings, Luke. That's the last thing you should do. That's the wisdom of Star Wars, not the wisdom of God. It's what we expose our children to and hopefully teach them about in every Disney movie, which is follow your feelings. We even had a dog when they were living, when they were living, not anymore. You know, follow your heart, they said. And they go, I know, Dad, we're not follow our heart, and our heart's beginning to be. <laughs> but, but that is the message that we hear continually. Continue to follow your heart. The answer is inside of you. And it's far more than just popular culture and media. It is in the very foundation, in many ways, of our American culture and identity, which bears, yes, fruits of the Reformation, yes, fruits of that religious heritage, the Puritans that came out of England and other places. Yes, it bears that, but it also bears the fruit of the Enlightenment, too, which was a part of even the forming of our governments as well. Which says that essentially we need to break free from the tradition and the constraints of historic religion and realize that man has a, a potential within themselves which is ultimate and can lead us to our utopia, what we ultimately desire. We have it, we must do it, we must not be shattered by tradition and religion in the past. That's a part of our beginnings and our identity as well. One said this, or Pascal said this later in the section. He said, Man tries unsuccessfully to build this void with everything that surrounds him. This infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite, immutable object, that is to say, God Himself. God Himself. Some by grace don't realize this after much pain, and some do not. But Solomon was determined to find out for himself, and so he said, Come now. I will test you with pleasure. What did he find? That it too is futility. And he asks again, what does it accomplish? And in fact, we can maybe put it in a clearer light to say that Solomon is a picture of, of what Jesus said when he was speaking to his disciples. He said this, you know, what does it profit a man if he what? Gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. What does he gain in the end? Well, Solomon is that picture of saying, well, what can it profit him if he gains everything the world has to offer? And what does it ultimately offer for his soul? Again, this is Satan's lie, which we easily believe always that there's something more, there's something more, there's something more than what I have in Christ. Or in an ultimate sense, there's something more than what God has offered me. There's something more than in His Word. There's something more than in His promises. There's got to be something, something more. Johnny Cash, maybe some of y'all might know this song. Uh, Johnny Cash uh, did a song with YouTube, actually. I think YouTube wrote it, John, John's name. 
Uh, but he says this as part of it. It's called the wonder. He says, I went out there in search of experience, to taste and to touch and feel as much as a man can before he repents. He went out later and he goes on. He says, I went out searching, looking for one good man, a spirit who would not bend or break, who would sit at his father's right hand. I went out with nothing but the thought that you'd be there too. I went out looking for you. And isn't that what many of us were before we came to Christ as well? Trying to fill our life with everything the world could give us, only to realize it left us empty. It left us with nothing. That is something that only Christ can fill. And I would just say, we're going we're gonna to move on here, but I would just say, in setting this, this uh, understanding, this, this, this motivation for his pursuit, it, it is what... It is what tech companies, it is what the internet, uh, uh, those things that come through the internet, it's what they live on, it's what they thrive on. You said this many times. Billions of dollars are spent on advertising, and billions of dollars are spent on programming and on the internet uh, sites to do one thing. What? To make you think there's one more, there's one more, there's one more, there's one more. We won't rehash all of that. That has everything to do even with how it manipulates us physically in the brain. Releasing that reward pleasure. That's why it's called like cocaine addiction because that's what keeps us going is we associate pleasure only with that thing that most produces it. For a drug addict, it might be whatever, some kind of drug for an alcoholic. It's alcohol, it's alcohol for those who are workaholics. It's work, so on and so forth. The internet is always, there's one more page, there's one more image, there's one more item, there's one more scene, there's one more movie, there's one more show, there's one more episode. And that's what keeps us hooked. That's why we go there. We keep thinking, oh, that one was good, but if I do one more, it'll be better. Oh, if I do one more, it'll be better. And then we realize we wasted time. No, our souls were not made to find satisfaction in anything other than Christ. Jesus told the woman, well, you're going to drink this water in the well. Remember, you're going to thirst again. But the water that I give you will well up and will be a well to a life. And will continually spring up within you. Okay, with that being said, let's look at Solomon's search just briefly. Let's look at his search. First of all, let's notice this. The fruit of the search for meaning then in hedonism. He's already established the, the principle that's driving him. Let's consider just... Consider briefly the process, the process that he lays out for us, really beginning in verse 3. He begins with saying, I explored with my mind or heart, heart being that just all of who he is, his mind, his will, his affections, everything about this whole person, essentially. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, how to take what was until I could see what good there is. In it, four of the sons of men did you under heaven the few years of their life. Again, this was his first step in finding answers in self-adult indulgence. He begins with to see what does wine offer him? What does wine offer him? That's pretty simple. The basic idea here is simply he sought to find meaning to see if there's something to this idea of stimulating the body with alcohol. Of course, that goes against much of the wisdom of Proverbs that he wrote, but here, forgetting that, apparently, he decides to say, maybe there is something there, let me, let me explore it. Now, there's two ways to take this here. One, to say that he 
he went to explore what does drunkenness in sort of a, a, a life or moments of complete debauchery, what does that accomplish? That's one way to take his language here. Another way to take his language here is to say, not that he went all the way into drunkenness, but he merely took wine up to the point of not losing self-control so that he could think and consider what is in it. And really, it's the second option that we should understand here. He's not talking about complete drunkenness. He's not talking about fall of the vomiting, laying over the table, kind of drunkenness. It's not what he's referring to. He's referring to pursuing alcohol, wine, up to the point that he could see everything that it has to offer and he could learn from it. He could learn what it could do for him. Look what he says, while my eye over the street was guiding me wisely. Even in all of his searches, he'll say later at the end of verse 9, my wisdom stood by me. He was never out of control. He was never completely under its influence. He tried to take it just enough where he could see everything that it had to offer. Now again, God commends the proper use of wine, the proper enjoyment of wine. It's a blessing from God. It's not, it's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if it's used improperly, what he would teach us here, if it's used improperly to try to find some kind of escape from reality, or if it's used as some ultimate reward in life, like at the end of my day I can go home and have a beer, I can have a glass of wine, that's the best that life has to offer. If you're looking for it in that, or looking for those things from it, some kind of meaning then, as he says here, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? Those who try to escape reality by either getting drunk or numbing themselves with alcohol or drugs, what do they find in the morning? What do you wake up with? The same set of problems and the same set of questions, or even more added to them, depending on what you did while under the influence of alcohol. He says there's no answer there. There's no answer there. What does it accomplish? It accomplishes nothing. Who looks next then at his works? He says, then, I built houses for myself. I watch my works. I built houses for myself. I created vineyards for myself. Actually, here's a little, here's a little uh, hermeneutic uh, exercise for us. It's, it's not going to be too difficult. Just read with me and notice as we read through verses 4 all the way through verse 9. If you see any kind of thing repeated, that should pop out. Okay? Uh, verse 4, I watch my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I also collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And you make that repeated phrase? For myself. For myself. For myself. Again, this illustrates what was it that was driving him? Was he doing this for the betterment of Israel? A nation of whom he was over king and to be a blessing to them? Was he doing this because it somehow advanced God's glory to his people, the nation of Israel, who he redeemed from Egypt, whom he planted according to his promise in the city of Jerusalem? No. No. Again, this is Solomon working for Solomon. This is Solomon seeking Solomon. This is Solomon's king seeking Solomon's glorious king. Solomon the man seeking God, 
uh, pleasure for Solomon, the man. He brought everything that God had given him to this very end. And what he wanted to discover essentially is, is there any sense of satisfaction? Is there any ultimate meaning in life in what I can accomplish through all the things that God has given me? And so with every resource at his disposal and wealth and wisdom, he sought to create one that is actually called a secular garden of Eden. A secular garden of Eden. This is interesting. We've already noted before, we'll continue to note about the strong link in Ecclesiastes to the doctrine of creation in the opening first three chapters, particularly of the book of Genesis. The creation narrative, the fall narrative, what creation was and what it has to offer and what creation is under the conditions of the fall. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of connections here and links just by words used with the creation account. I just didn't get into my time, but so I'll just have to tell you that he planted a garden. He planted a garden, reflects from Genesis 2, the garden God planted. All kinds of fruit trees, the scribes of God put in the garden of Eden for Adam and Eve's delight. To irrigate, the scribes of the rivers that went out to give water to the garden of Eden, to sprout and to grow. It recalls God's work of causing things to grow in the garden once he had planted Adam in it. To make and to do captures all of the accounts of God in the creation, what he did. God did this, God did this, God did this. He made all things. And that language is overflowing here in Solomon. He's essentially seeking to create for himself his own little private Eden with gardens and rivers and lakes and singers and music and wealth and money. You can even remember in the creation account where he spoke of the gold and the other precious stones that were there. Here, this is what Solomon masters for himself in great quantities. He just wanted again to do it without God. That was the issue. He wanted to create a paradise of all of these things, but it was unmaking. Essentially, he wanted this. And this is what, what drives the fallen heart. He wanted all of these things, this utopia world, but he wanted it without God. Isn't that exactly what Satan promised? Or what Satan led to? If you remain in the garden as it is, Eve, you're missing out. God has withheld something from you that you have the potential within yourself to gain. If you will only believe me and reach out and take hold of it, I can give you what you really want. I can provide that for you. You can provide it for yourself essentially by listening to my wisdom and to my words. You can have it, Eve. Why would you let God, the ultimate killjoy, the ultimate one, who for his own selfish purposes wants to keep from you the fullness of all that's before your eyes? The tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can have Eden. You can have the garden. You can have the pleasures that you've known up to this point. You can have fullness and blessing, but you can have it on your own and on your own terms. Isn't that the lie that we believe? That's the lie. You want to know the base of sin is essentially that. There. And this is what Solomon, who should have known better, believed. He wanted to create his own garden, so he did. And he had no restraints in his ability to do it. I built houses, he planted vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees. 
beautiful palms to irrigate all that he had done. Male, male, and female. So these are in ancient Near Eastern terms were the very badges of honor and glory for a monarch and for a king. These were the very things that, however much what, uh, that their greatness, the things through which their greatness was expressed. Who was the greatest? The one who had the most of these things. The most houses, the most gold, the most singers, the most servants, the most plans. Those are the ones who had made it. Those are the ones whose God was the greatest. So he basically wanted a garden that Satan presented it, which is what so many of us really want. I get so much more fun if God were and, and believers, hopefully believers, but believers follow this trap. I have so much more pleasure if I could just get out from under all these restrictions that God places on my life. And of course, what Adam and Eve discovered, and what Solomon discovered, and so many others have discovered, that the garden without God is like it's like it's like a hell. It doesn't bring pleasure; it brings pain. They we find that it doesn't do everything that we had hoped that it would, and it works out in a variety of ways. A variety of ways. Let me just mention a few. You could add your own. It's that subtle drive that we have within ourselves, within humanity that says, I will, I will find meaning if I can make a name for myself, if I can somehow prove myself, establish myself, whether it be to the world, whether it be to a loved one, whether it be to whoever, by what I can accomplish, by what I can accomplish. If I can just accomplish this, if I can just get this degree, I'll be happier. If I get this job, I'll be happier. If I get this house and live in this neighborhood and have this acquaintance and have this friend, if I can have that, whatever, that will do it. Ask yourself this, if I only had what, how would you answer this? It would make me happy. Think of your life. Does something spiritual or material come to your mind? You can only answer that. If I could only accomplish this, this would make me fulfilled. What comes to your mind immediately? Is it something spiritual or is it something earthly? Interestingly, uh, I ran across somebody who gave this account of an interview with Tom Brady at Radio Tom Brady's. Not asking if you're a fan, just asking if you who he is. Uh, he was the quarterback for the New England Patriots. But he was in an interview after, he, uh, after winning the third Super Bowl, and this is an account of the interview. What do you do when you have everything of the, the other accounts? What do you do when you have everything you thought you ever wanted and still isn't enough? Football star Tom Brady was asked this question on a 60 Minutes interview. Brady had just quarterbacked the New England Patriots to their third Super Bowl. And he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something great out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think... It's got to be more than this. I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't fulfill what it's all cracked up to be. When the interviewer asked, interviewer asked, what's the answer? Brady can only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And many who achieve that, and even more than that in their life, end up when they have it with the same kind of answer. Is this it? Is this it? Again, because those things were never meant to satisfy our soul. Why? 
What happens when you get what you really want? What about that Christmas gift? Or that thing that you worked and you saved up for and you did it? What happens? You're pretty, pretty excited, right, at first? Maybe it was a new car. Uh, if I had a new Porsche SUV, one of those things, well, I'm not a car person, but I do like it. And I, you know what would happen? Well, I get it, and I think, ah, this is cool. I probably want to take it out on a windy road and then drive as fast as I can safely. <laughs> you know, just to see what this thing could do. Uh, but then what would happen? A week would go by, and two weeks would go by, and three weeks would go by, and a year would go by, and what would happen? You get bored with it, right? And then it's just a car in the parking lot, and we change the oil, and we take care of it like anything else. You might like it, but it doesn't have that initial excitement. All of life is like that. You can put in anything that you can think of, and it's going to work out that way. Everything. That's, that's kind of the point here. It doesn't, it doesn't have... It doesn't deliver on what we want it to. Think of the Solomonic Temple. It's one of the great structures of the ancient Near Eastern world. Where is it? Ruth. God destroyed it, wiped it off the map because of his unfaithfulness. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like the man who wants to spend all of his time in the workplace to build a bigger portfolio, a bigger portfolio, to get more material possessions, often under the guise of providing for my family, which is a good thing, but not if it's also if you provide for your family through the neglect of your family. And it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Only to realize when it's too late that you, he, she, whatever, has neglected the real sources of joy, spending time, developing relationships, memory, family. You've heard this, we hear it all the time. It's because it has a criminal, it's as truth in it. Almost no one has gotten to their deathbed and said they wish they spent more time making money. Some might say that, but that's going to be less common. What do we usually say? I wish I would have stopped. I wish I would have done with less and enjoyed life more with those that I love. What about, I would say, this is the very kind of thing, unless we think this is detached from where we live, what's behind feminism? There's a large part of feminism which says, what is my value in my worth as a woman? My value in my worth is to prove to you that I have every bit of intellectual capability, every bit of leadership capability, every bit of creative ability that a man does, and so I'm going to make it in the world to prove that I am in no way inferior. You know, there's been plenty who have done that, and they get to the end of life and they think, oh, but I want children, and they're devoted all their time spending careers, and they realize they're 40, 45, you know, children 40, but older, and they're disappointed because they can't have families. And they realize, but that's what my heart really longs for, is children, a home, how many lives is it destroyed in marriages? Is that kind of thinking destroyed? How many children and family have that ruined? It doesn't provide happiness. It doesn't ultimately provide happiness. Well, if that doesn't do it, what about sex? What about sex? And he puts that there at the end of verse 8, but enough to treat on its own because it is such a significant issue. He says, so I provided for myself male and female seekers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Per se, many concubines. In short, he says, well, if it's not that, it's not building, it's not music, it's not merely the accumulation of gold which flowed throughout the land of Israel, maybe I'm willing to indulge every sexual desire I have and I will be a satisfied man. Now, the meaning of concubines here is interesting, or the term here is used only here, actually, in, in Scripture. It most likely comes from a root word that means breast, and the idea here is that she's in other places. Uh, outside of scripture, is that they're women of pleasure. Women of pleasure. 
That's what he accumulated for himself. First Kings 11.3 says this, Solomon had, we read it before, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Essentially, he had unlimited sex. It was like a living pornography movie. It was like his own little playboy, private playboy image. He had it. Do you realize that that number, 1,700 700 wives and 300 concubines, he could have sex with a different woman for over two years and never and never be the same woman? I mean, this is complete indulgence. Indulgence. And you go, wow, that was Solomon. We know these statistics. We always get tired of having to, to, to have to repeat them. But this is this is what drives much of our culture. We don't have it through, you know, most can't afford 700 wives and 300 concubines. But we do try to seek it out in pornography. What are some of the statistics? 400,000 porn websites. One had 42 million. I don't know why that's discrepancy. 400,000 porn websites are existing on the internet today, at least. 450 million hits per month to pornography websites. 450 million per month. $3 billion in the USA alone in annual. I think the number is about $8 billion worldwide. And it's always increasing. And what has that done? Has that made us a more sexually satisfied and happy culture? Has that, made, has that helped and strengthened our families? Has it produced happiness or fulfillment? What has that done? It's produced broken homes, broken relationships, lost jobs, lost opportunities, wasted time, the massive increase of sex trafficking and child pornography, prostitution. How many men and women now it's increasing? I think 40% is the last pornography uses by women. How much guilt, shame, and sorrow has it produced in the soul? The destruction of the ability to know the true joy, the joys of healthy sexuality within marriage is destroyed it. What has it done? What did it do for Solomon? Well, we know what it did for Solomon. At the end of his life, it turned his heart away from worshiping the true God and took everything that he made and it brought the judgment of God because he turned to these idols of those his wives who turned his heart and the kingdom was taken away. That's what it did. There was no answer there. There was no answer in wine. There was no answer in accomplishing great things for himself. There was no answer in unlimited sexual satisfaction. There's no answer in that. All it did was make him enslaved to it. Interestingly, Time Magazine had this quote uh, in the 1960s that I doubt they would have it now in response to some of the sexual revolution. They said, when sex is pursued, but they got this part right. When sex is pursued only for pleasure, only for gain, or even to only to fulfill a void in society or in the soul, it becomes elusive and personal, uh, impersonal and ultimately disappointing. Again, it's not sexual pleasure that is the issue, it's what we want from it. And that can happen outside of marriage or even within marriage if we don't have a godly view of it. His conclusion, what did he conclude? Verse 9. Well, really, verse 10. All my eyes desired, I did not refuse them, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. And again, I just want to stop there and say, and we as parents understand this is what we battle consistently with. So, I mean, is there a parent here who would disagree that 90% of your parenting you feel like has to be with a lot of device or movies or media? I see smiles, as we all know. 
And that's what it's focused right. Here is it's this constant say saying, this, take this, pursue this, seize this. And what did he say? I do not withhold my heart from any pleasure. I use no essentially self-control. I gave into whatever it is that I wanted to do. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. And thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, and there was no profit in it. There was no profit under the sun. There's no profit under the sun. Now, isn't it interesting, I think, when we look at what Solomon, again, and it's not so much about Solomon, it's what Solomon represents. It's what Solomon represents. It's what's in his heart that's found in the heart of all fallen men. And even of believers in terms of the remaining flesh and the temptations that we may experience or that we do experience. But here's what's interesting, is that the person with unlimited human resources to pursue every desire that he had is the one who more than anybody in Scripture shows us the limits of humanity. It's an interesting contrast. He, humanly speaking, had everything, and yet he shows us that humanly on our own, we have nothing. That's what he ended up with. Vanity is vanity. All is vanity. And I want to just briefly then compare that. I'm going to finish this last question. Compare that with Jesus. Compare that with Christ. Christ was the very embodiment of perfect humanity. He was the embodiment of the eternal God, the Son of God, in flesh, clothed in flesh. But in his humanity, in his humanness, he was perfect humanity. He is what you and I should be. That's why we are to walk as Christ walked in this world. He is what we will be conformed to in the resurrection. Our resurrection bodies in the final state will be conformed to Christ in his humanity, his glorified humanity. We will be conformed, in the words of Paul, to the body of his glory. He is perfect humanity. And he was faced with the same temptations in principle. And he resisted them. He resisted them and out of his trust in the Father and show that joy doesn't come from those things. Here you have the height of human glory on its own shown to be nothing. Here you have him who was the perfection of human in his essence, humanity in his essence, and he resisted all of these things. He showed it's not there. Remember when Satan tempted him in the garden? I'm just gonna, I'm not going to go there. He said, seize your own satisfaction. Make bread for yourself, and do, by doing this, just prove your meaning and purpose in this world if you are the Son of God. Jesus said, no, but I'm going to live on every word that proceeds out of God. Satan so says, seize your own admiration. Receive from yourself the, the glory of the people by throwing yourself off the temple. What did Jesus say? No, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to walk humbly with him. Satan says, seize your own power and glory. It's yours anyway by showing him all of the glory and the majesty of the kingdoms. And what did Jesus say? You know, I'll worship God alone. I'll worship God alone. That's where my goodness and my joy and my purpose lies, is to fulfill all of the Father's will for my life. But you know what? We don't, we don't often, in humanity in general, unfortunately too often as believers, past those same temptations. 
And all of those who give into are going to end up at the same place that every person has ever ended up. Wasted time and energy to find it cannot provide what your soul really wants, what your soul truly longs for, which is Christ Himself. Which is Christ Himself. Um, we are going to pick up and finish 12, 26. Uh, but let me leave you with this one. Just one uh, example. So, so what, is the, what is the point of all of it? What is it? It is as simple as this to realize that nothing can satisfy our souls like Christ. And we say, well, I know that. I'm a Christian. That's so basic. And I'd say it is basic, right? Of course it is. But let me ask you, how much of your life demonstrates that? How much of my life? Granted, I ask myself these questions. And I'll find plenty to repent of. And to see. But let me ask you, how much of your life, how much of your joys, how much of your energies, how much of your time and your resources, your anticipations, really live in line with that truth? Say, no, Christ actually is my greatest satisfaction. God actually is my greatest good. How, how, how much can we say that? And then Solomon challenges us there. He challenges us. He challenges our typical American worldview. He challenges that tendency of our flesh naturally to pursue joy outside of him. We can say, how much joy do I receive from, from nearness to God in prayer, in his word, in meditation, in his word? How much joy do I receive from that in comparison to the other things in life? We're going we're gonna to take and pull that a, a bit more, but that's a question we can ask. Let me... Let me end with this illustration that will cause us to think of it. There's a, a journal, a, fam a famous journalist. Uh, his name was Mother Ridge. Have you ever heard of Mother Ridge? Anybody? Uh, kind of makes the point, I think. It's all in the point. But here, Mother Ridge was, I haven't heard from him either before. Uh, but he was in his day, which is around the 50s, I think, uh, in, the, in, in Britain, was a well-known and a very accomplished uh, journalist. Very well-known and accomplished and influential journalist. Uh, he came to Christ later in his life. So later he became a Christian at the end of his life. And he wrote about it in a book called Jesus Rediscovered. Jesus Rediscovered. And in that book he says this, I may suppose, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass myself for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That is success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That is pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That is fulfillment. Yet, I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing. Less than nothing. A positive impediment. Measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Right? So, 
Have you tasted that drought of living water? Have you tasted what he promised that coming of the well? Can you read those words in John chapter 4 and say, I know what he means there? I may not live fully up to it, but I know what he means, and I know what my heart wants to see. Can we read the promise that he gave to the crowds? And he says, He who believes in me will never hunger. Here comes he who never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Have we tasted of that reality? And if we have, then it is our wisdom to pursue that as a, which is to pursue Christ as our highest joy and our greatest joy and the greatest end of everything that we do. Guess what? And we're reminded of this a bit more in our times. This world is fading away. Right? It's not going to last. And God can take us out of it at any moment anyway. But what does last is our fellowship with Christ so that if we know Him, we will never in other words, we will have unbroken, intimate fellowship with the Father through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, forever. And that is the joy, and that is the treasure, and that is the happiness that we are wise to dedicate our lives to pursue. If you have not tasted that, then uh, you can. You can. It's a matter of repentance and faith. It's a matter of believing, as Christ said. And in believing to read and trust them. Well, we'll pick it up there next week and finish this chapter. Let me pray and John this song. Father, it's so simple. We know and anybody who is a Christian and maybe even really in some level a thinking unbeliever, who's somewhat observant, would acknowledge that this creation in and of itself, wealth, fame, money, Offers, offers no ultimate satisfaction. But we as Christians know something deep. We know something profound that what our souls were made for, we can find. It doesn't have to be elusive to us. It doesn't have to be a secret. It doesn't have to be something that we are estranged to in our actual experience in life. What our souls were made for us, you have brought to us. You brought it to Solomon in the Old Covenant and the Temple and the sacrifices in your word and the covenant and the prophets throughout the ages that you descend to them. But you brought it to us in a more glorious way. You brought it to us in Christ, who is the very manifestation of God in flesh, who is the very epitome of what it means to be human and to be wise and to be good and to be holy and to be joyful, who is the very foundation of our salvation, who is the atonement for our sin, who is the life giver who defeated death, who is our intercessor, who is at your right hand, even now making intercession for us, and the Spirit as well with groans too deep for words. We have offered to us in Christ profound glory of fellowship with you, forgiveness of our sin. And hope in a kingdom that is coming that is the glories that our hearts can only begin to imagine the fringes of its ways in all of its wonders. Fill our heart with those wonders, fill our hearts with Christ. The wonders of our salvation. Again, Lord, that we might live for you in this world in hope and joy and in usefulness. And for those here who may not know you, if there are some, then it is our prayer that. Bring them to the end of themselves, like the prodigal. 
Make them to see that whatever it is they're pursuing instead of you is empty. Whatever pain you need to bring them to, bring them to it because it's far better than the pain of dying without you. Whatever you need to do in their life, show them that it's empty and Christ is everything that they truly desire. And they might know grace and forgiveness. This is our prayer, and we leave these things into you, the hand of you, our sovereign and our good and our gracious God. And we pray in the name of Jesus.